this is a time to build because you know this uncertainty is like any other market condition. There will be uncertainty. That is a certainty. We will not have a solid set of rules for the US anytime soon. So look to your systems and harden what you can and create the data trails that you must and delete your data as quickly as you can where you can. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building Smarter Markets be the antidote? Welcome back to our Smarter Markets Summer Playlist, where we're sitting down with our special guests midway through this momentous year in markets to talk about where we are and where we might be and need to be heading next. It's Beach Reading in a Podcast. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Michelle Dennity, CEO of Privacy Code. We'll be discussing protecting our privacy, building a better information economy, and what Gen X can teach Gen Z or vice versa. Hello, Michelle. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Thank you. It's great to be back during your summer reading series. Well, really glad to have you back with us today. I've always enjoyed your episodes as both a host and a guest on Smarter Markets because you make these issues, these complex issues of privacy and data security so accessible, and there's a lot to talk about today. Always lots to talk about. So thank you very much, and and thanks for keeping the topic alive. Absolutely. And I think we we have to begin with the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade and Justice Clarence Thomas opening the door to further rolling back the court's established position on the right to privacy. This has so many implications. And you're a lawyer and a privacy expert, so you're the person who's perfect to speak with about this. Where do we even begin to think about the implications of this move by the court on the right to privacy? Oh, Lordy, Lordy, I'm feeling 140, David. I think um, let's leave politics out of this for a minute, if you can, because depending on what time of day you're listening to the pod, I'm not sure how strong a drink you can make to get through this timeline. So let's, let's approach this first from the legal perspective. The grasp from Griswold, Casey, and Roe, the progeny of healthcare data and data privacy at the Supreme Court, was always a bit of a tenuous sort of band together. So for the last 50 years, we've sort of been winking and nodding at one another, saying the informational right of a patient to have a sacred conversation with her doctor and, and his doctor, because we are talking about family planning and reproductive rights and not just the uterus, we're talking about both pieces of the equation here. So both the fertilized and the fertilizer in the past, for the past half century, have had the right to privacy codified in, in case law and decision making that the Supreme Court formerly was, was validating, saying that you should be able, as part of your right as a citizen, inherently as a citizen of the United States, you should have the right to have certain types of conversations and intimacies that fall into this category of privacy. And some of it is personal privacy and physical privacy and integrity. So the right to be left alone, this goes back into jurisprudence in traditional 
uh, U.S. fashion into the 1890s with the famous Warren and Brandeis right to privacy article that was in the Harvard Law Review. And so when you think about not just the right to a certain type of health care for women, think about it more broadly of can you ask your doctor for a certain type of hormonal adjustment? So whether you're taking these types of hormone adjustments because you've got acne or you would like to delay your body from hormonally being prepared to have a child or you're in menopause and you want to prolong your health and well-being. All of those various conversations fall into different context buckets that are now very much in question. So there's sort of two things that are, are falling out apart from reproductive rights and you know, equal protection rights under the Constitution, which are all in big question and big foment. I just want to focus for a smarter market on what does it mean to have a class of data that we assumed enjoyed 50 states worth of protection, i.e. health data, that now has a very big question mark. Does that data enjoy protection as an inherent right you know, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Or is this something that is more of a commercial right or a segmentable or an alienable right that should be outside of the realm of, of something that we all have as human beings who exist on, you know, in this country together as in a federated democracy. And so various, like you can vote or you can vote not to have these sort of rights. So what are the implications here? When we think about health apps, not all of these devices are collecting information to provide that information to your doctor or some covered entity to provide you healthcare. So they may or may not fall under the federal HIPAA, which is the health insurance portability. There's no privacy in HIPAA, but there's a very strong security and privacy rule in HIPAA. Does HIPAA even stand if there is not a federally constitutional protected right to privacy? We don't know. So that's a very long-winded, and we could I could go on with a lot of wind that would make a tornado, but the implications of Roe are not abortion. The implications of Roe are data data privacy, and individual freedom to make determinative and have conversations that do not have government involvement. Right. And it's it's so important that the conversations with the doctor, as you said, were always considered sacred. And now it's unclear of, you know, can the police or an investigator come in and take those conversations? And what's the chilling impact on having an honest discussion with your doctor? But also, I, you know, wanted to get into like the, the technological piece that you brought up because so many of us are using these health tracking apps. Many women track their cycles using these types of apps. I imagine there are some ways just through, you know, things like Apple watches and other fitness trackers that you could determine, you know, where someone is in their cycle. And does everyone have to be much more cognizant about the data that's being collected and is there any security around it at all at this point, other than you know what can technologically be put to lock it down? Well, I think these are two very huge thoughts. I think, and and let's let's start by digging in with security and privacy. What is that relationship of one to the other? Where private data must be secured and secured over time in context and free from outsiders' observation and and disruption and corruption. That's the security piece. Privacy is much broader than security. So talking about 
are you allowed to observe the, uh, the conversation? Is this a one-to-one conversation between patient and doctor? Am I being a patient when I'm talking to my next door neighbor who happens to be a doctor? Probably not. It's similar to, am I being a client when I talk to my neighbor who happens to be a lawyer? Now, I'm a lawyer by training. I often say, this is a legal opinion I might have. I am not your lawyer. We're very clear to say that. And often doctors will say the same because there are very real responsibilities and fiduciary duties when that relationship attaches. Now, the assumption on the person who's sharing matters here. Right. So thing number one is security is not privacy. So even if something is secure, it may not be private. It may not be controlled with your consent. According to context, it may be shared in a way that you don't expect or you find to be disrespectful or even harmful. So understanding technologically locking things down, quote unquote, is a tremendously hard to do. The security industry is mostly reasonable efforts based And also where we don't really understand what the privacy engineering requirements are. So who has the life cycle fiduciary care for that data that's coming in through your watch from your skin into the sensor? Or is it coming in through a camera? Is it your camera? Are we working out together? Dave and I go for a jog and I happen to be recording with, you know, whatever the the newest version of Google Glass, if you're old enough to remember that when I'm observing other people, all of these data elements. So even if a woman decides not to track her monthly cycles, if she is sharing a home with more than one woman, it's very likely you can guess what her cycle is if other people are tracking theirs. You know, fun fact, we we often align with our hormonal conversations that we're having in thin air. So understanding the implications of what are data analytics, What are you allowed to have? What are we giving away? And what are we accidentally sharing? What does all of this mean for privacy engineering? And what are our responsibilities as community members, as family members, as parents, as employers, and as people in general societies who may be even standing on the border of maybe one state has state laws that say one thing about that information and its privacy, and another state might have different rules, and yet the IT infrastructure underneath it only recognizes electrons and not elections. So we have to really think about what does this mean for how are we building our systems going forward so that they are resilient in a time of extreme uncertainty and extreme physical safety legal, and financial risk. This is supposed to be a summer beach read, David. My goodness, we've gone dark. <laughs> I feel like privacy and security conversations have a tendency to do that, at least around We kind of love it. I'm not yeah. going to lie. <laughs> but it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just so fascinating. And I, you know, as, as a man who will never be pregnant, it's also interesting to think- It's early days, David. It's early days. <laughs> Technology is always advancing. But I, 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 I feel like I'm done. It does raise the interesting question of, does someone like myself have a different level of privacy in conversations with doctors? Because no one will be looking to see if I'm pregnant and then not pregnant and what happened in between. And what does that mean for like the idea of equal justice under law if I have a different expectation of privacy than you would? Right. Well, and if you're capable of 
fertilizing someone else's egg. And we do have the science that we didn't have in the 1960s that says we, we can look at your DNA. So every baby born or every fetus created, whether they're born or not, we can look at the information that is encoded in, the, in each of the cells. And we could say, this person has a 99% chance of being fathered by you know, person X and mothered by person Y. So if we are doing an equal protection under the law, under today's contextual scientific capabilities and the information science tools that we have available, one would say that the death of data privacy at you know, as a fundamental human right, as a basic construct of a free society, rather than a state-by-state sort of commercial, you know, trading card, you have to really take another step backwards and say, anyone who is capable of creating a blastocyst or a zygote, do we now register everybody's DNA? Do we require vasectomies that are easily reversible, but are pretty far up the supply chain, as it turns out, in in the fertilization game. And we're not talking about abstinence anymore. We're talking about disrupting the supply chain. What, what are the implications here outside of, and, and I know it sounds kind of sort of monstrous, and, and I'm not trying to, again, be political, but I'm looking at it from a data perspective, a legal perspective of how do you now apply today's science and what we know about the ability for us to freely travel, quickly travel, and the transactional nature of fertilization versus the state over time of, you know, A, being pregnant. So I can, I can be fertilized in Texas and I can be pregnant in California. And that, that's two different implications. But the transaction probably happened somewhere, one place or another. So where do we apply the law? Where do we apply the consequences and how long do these data implications get stored and by whom? So that's as a data science person, as a market watcher, as someone who's predicting privacy engineering requirements, you know, right now we're, we're asking our employers in the U.S. to supply our health care. If our health care is tied to the ability to support a blastocyst fetus baby, does that mean everybody has to come with some sort of a childbirth, child care insurance policy? Are we asking our employers now to proactively either require that you're doing something about your reproductive world? Or are we saying, because you're already burdened with health care, now you should be burdened with information monitoring of these humans that tend to sometimes create more humans. And you can see how this mon- this gets more and more monstrous as you play this out as a systems engineer, because it, it gets you to a very absurd place pretty quickly, where, where you really want to pull back into the marketplace again and go, okay, it turns out that individual self-sovereignty is a pretty cool thing, both because, I don't know, it's kind of fun to feel like we have our own free will, but also from a systems engineering perspective, it's good to have a start, middle, and finish of relationships, either as an employer, as a citizen, as a child, as a student. These are things that we understand in situ and in systems. And I, I sort of leave the spiritual to the spiritual people, and I leave the transactional and the data interrogation and, and even data justice to systems and systems engineers. 
And it certainly seems like the, the, the Pandora's box has been opened here in terms of implications of this. And, you know, we are smarter markets, so we're focused on self-sovereign identity. We're focused on market issues. There's so many important things about, you know, basic human rights, but that's beyond beyond what we can really get into here. <laughs> Yeah, for our market builders, you want to build, right? This is a time to build because you know there this uncertainty is like any other market condition. There will be uncertainty. That is a certainty. We will not have a solid set of rules for the US anytime soon. So look to your systems and harden what you can and create the data trails that you must and delete your data as quickly as you can where you can. And and I wanted to ask you about the economic implications for the United States. Uncertainty is typically not good for economies and investment and markets. And, you know, there was a recent event where Italy's Data Protection Authority effectively banned the use of uh, one of the audience measurements tools in Google Analytics uh, as it's not compliant with the EU's data protection regulations because it sends data back to the U.S. Right. And the and the Italians ruled that the U.S. safeguards on that data weren't adequate to European levels. So that's, you know, I guess, someone in the United States, I think we're one of the leading information, you know, information is what we do. Uh, technology is what we do. And now other countries aren't allowing analytics to be used because we're not secure enough can you explain what's happening in Europe and, and what <laughs> it means now that, you know, U.S. data protection will likely be even less adequate than at the time of this ruling? Yeah. So, I mean, explaining the vagaries of data protection law in Europe is is about as easy as explaining what the heck is going on on the uh, the Supreme Court bench these days. So We only give you the easy <laughs> questions, Michelle. Yeah, we'll give it a stab. So I, I think it's really interesting because at the turn of the last century, I would have told you that by the year 2022-2023, we would really have embraced data treaties. We would have recognized that because we do like to draw revenue from other countries, we like to have families that travel hither and yon based on our current technology, and now with you know, the ability to do video and voice at a very cheap level. You know, when I was coming up, a long distance phone call was like a dollar a minute or something. And you'd call your mom, collect and say, it's Henry calling. And she'd say, I don't know any Henry. And that would be your signal. And she'd hang up. Now uh, we transact business seamlessly across borders. So at the turn of the last century, I assumed that this is where we would be going and therefore economically, socially, commercially, we would have these data treaties where we would have a certain level of security that we would agree to. We would figure out, you know, what is that, what we used to call a web tone at Sun Microsystems where you'd have a certain availability of processing power. Those things have not happened as it turned out. And so when we first started putting geographic borders in place for data and started saying, you know, one country could reach out or one region in the in the European Union's case could reach out into another region and say, you are not adequate. And therefore, the default position is do not share with countries that are not adequate. And adequacy here for what we're talking about, for Google Analytics or other analytics too, I don't want to call out one company because that's not the point. 
the ability of any private company in the United States to resist the U.S. government from asking using, you know, under current law, let's leave the crooks out of this. Let's leave the cyber criminals and the, and the hackers out of this for a minute. Using legal process that is the state of the state, if a private entity in the United States is subject to that kind of interrogation and has that kind of data accessible to it, under this kind of an analysis from Europe, they're saying that any sort of data that has personal data or personally identifiable data, which is very broadly defined, can be an IP address, can be a, a, a GUID from your, your phone or your device. It doesn't have to be your name and actual you know, birth certificate or social tax number. But if you have any information about Europeans or that describes Europeans, and that's capable of being asked for um, un under process from the US government, then that can be deemed unlawful data. And therefore, there can be a blockage of that data from traveling. Now, in a world in the market where, the, where data is currency, and not, I'm not talking about selling data broker stuff or even the advertising business or even the analytics that Google is currently, the case under the Italian case was Google Analytics. I'm talking about actually knowing things about employees or customers or future employees or customers or citizens. That is the currency du jour in an information-based society as we have. So we're talking about one region being able to stop that processing to cut off any revenue or innovation based on that currency traveling from border to border. Just this morning, there was a case in Ireland that was decided against Facebook that basically said they found that the transfer of information on Facebook to the United States about European citizens was unlawful. And because the Schrems 2 decision came down and said that the privacy shield was no longer valid. So an agreement between the U.S. Commerce Department and the European Union no longer valid because the U.S. government can, under lawful process, ask for information. They can't use that vehicle. So Facebook did what everybody else did, and they used what's called standard contractual clauses. They did a whole bunch of different legal agreements. Those fail for the same reason. And fundamentally, a year from now, when all of the rest of the European Union chimes in and says, what do you think, what they can't do and what is not under a private company's control is, will there be this agreement where the US government will not ask private citizens and corporations um, who, under, unfortunately, under Citizens United, which is a whole other problem, when you think about that as a person, and it's a person that lives everywhere, until that agreement is made and strengthened and deemed adequate, we are going to have these constant barriers in trading. And so what happens in your marketplace is you have to build data centers locally. And so only the big players, ironically, they think they're democratizing data and they think they're democratizing competitive value. And what's happening is the big players do have the capital to invest in local data centers and the little guys do not. So will there be le Google? Will there be le Facebook? Le livre de visage? Maybe.
but probably not. So we're either going to have to figure out how do we work as privacy engineers to have even more clean snippets of data that is provably not associated with an individual, or we have to build and and do real estate infrastructure. And a, a big focus of this podcast is how do we fuel all of this with energy so that we're basically innervating um, social networks and, and other types of utilities based on data that actually can operate lawfully. So again, like long answer. I'm, I'm like long-winded today, David. I don't know what's up with me. I'm glad because <laughs> I'm just taking it in. And well, it's amazing, right? Where we think of, you know, you think of data as being so fluid, fast moving, crosses borders, you know, the ultimate international good. And it seems like we're we're introducing all of the barriers to trade that we're so used to in the material world. You know, are we going to have barriers to entry? Are we going to have trade wars when it comes to data? Are we going to need a WTO of uh, data at some point? I think we will, and it's kind of up, it's kind of upsetting because this is when the slide rule brigade should really be at our best. Like this is the time for math, you know, like data is, is ultimately an electron that's getting pushed hither and yon. And so having rules of engagement shouldn't limit information, having agreements and what I call the surveillance economy, where you have a few bad actors in particular that are hell bent on observing everything everywhere and they've convinced themselves that this is somehow ethical or moral or that somehow we've agreed to it because we're willing to take a picture and put it on a social network or we're willing to come to work and therefore you get to spy on me through my camera in my home office. All of these myths about how people actually operate and how morality should and shouldn't be put into the investment vehicle that that I think probably comes up through ESG at board level. I think there's a lot of innovation to happen in board reporting. There's a lot of innovation that has to happen at the SEC to say, what is a good company? What is a company worthy of investment? And it's not how much surveillance can you get done and how much data about someone else can you sell? Yeah. And, you know, sadly, we've all gotten too accustomed to giving up our privacy to the big companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, because you really have to if you want to be part of society and the economy these days. It's hard to think about well, operating without it. Or, well, well, what else can I do? Not so fast. Not so fast, young man. I don't think we have to. And I think the I think that there are some bad actors in that bunch, in the Fang gang, if you will, that have convinced a slice of us that that is true. So if you want to converse with your elderly aunt who is on a certain platform, you must quote unquote, give up your privacy. I think thing number one, why should I? Right now, I don't have a lot of competition. And so I do it, but I don't like it. And the reality is, if you ask that same question of the Irish immigrants, my people who came to New York City at the turn of the last, last century, you know, going from the 1800s into the 19th hundreds, and you looked at it economically, you would say, wow, those poor Catholic people love eating rat and sawdust. Like they, we make sausages out of rats and the worst part of the beef and sawdust. And sometimes we pour some bleach on it so it doesn't stink so bad. And man, oh, Manischewitz, those Irish people, they eat that up. If you looked at the economic flow, you would say, well, 
same same thing. Like those Irish people sure like them rats. The reality is uh, when, when Upton Sinclair revealed what was going on in Chicago and New York and the abattoirs and the fact that there was no food safety regulation and people were allowed to hide and lie and fill things that go into people's bodies and they feed to their children with these horrible poisonous substances, they had to buy it because it was literally the only food available, but they certainly were not choosing to eat things that were unwholesome. I think we've been eating a whole lot of rat and it's, and I'm kind of over it. And I think there's a lot we can do it about it. I'm optimistic about that. I'm glad to hear that. You've kind of put me off hot dogs for the summer though. <laughs> I know so, it's a summer read. I know. Well, Come hot on. dogs are regulated. You That's know, you good. have to have only wholesome parts in your, it's better in your dog. And I also wanted to ask you, because, you know, but in order to get to that better place, we kind of all have to band together, right? It wasn't private acts that changed the Chicago stockyards and the meat processing industry. It was people like Sinclair kind of galvanizing public attention and then people demanding that, you know, the right to quality food and, you know, regulated food was handled by the government and you had, you know, the USDA and everything else. So what would the equivalent of that be in this moment, do you think? Yeah, I think there are activists amongst us that are kind of the the repertoires. You know, we've, we've had some great, um, you know, Kashmir Hill and Julia, um, I'm going to say her name wrong, Ang- Angular, who've done some revelations about like what these social networks know about us, et cetera. So we have people talking about it. We have the EFF, we have the the ACLU. Then we have this sort of crop of innovators, and I'm really proud to work amongst them. So my company is called Privacy Code, and and basically it's based on the premise that while I've been talking to and talking about and writing about and even wrote a book about privacy and privacy engineering for the last 25 years, The shame of it is people don't tend to take the privacy engineer's manifesto to the beach with them and consume it and go, I'm going to change my world. I'm a privacy engineer. There are some people that have done it. The reality is if I can convert something really complicated into something that you can do in two weeks or you can do in a sprint or you can plan or you can mark or you can prove then one by one, you don't have to be a subject matter expert in privacy, but you can have an identification vehicle where you're doing using a self-sovereign identity technique to not overshare. And you can, if you're consuming information, you can make sure before you're putting together some sort of machine learning, you can actually check the provenance of the types of data that you're buying. Are you buying rat data? How old is that data? And if you start asking whoever's selling you the data how old it is, and not just is this consent covered data, which has always been garbage data, where did you get this data? What was the context? How old is it? And we start consuming these ingredients. We're going to get to what I call organic analytics, like that delicious strawberry that's just the right flavor and just the right time. And you're you're putting it on your plate and you're slicing it up and it's almost decorative. It's so beautiful. You don't want to eat it. That's the kind of analytic that should be the thing that you're talking about at your board. 
like we're using the best data and we're getting the best insights and we're measuring it. And our customers are actually delighted about it. They're not sharing this picture because they have to. They're sharing this picture because it's them delighted to be personal and get real with us. Or it's a woman who is trusting you with her health information because she has to do something about this terrible pain she's having and she doesn't want to be castigated as if she's doing something naughty or wrong because you've proven yourself worthy. So you've curated your data, you've gone beyond security to keep bad guys out, and you've proven yourself worthy. Otherwise, these other people are going to eat like these little, you know, gelatin-like pink things that we're calling strawberry jam. But I want you to have organic data, David. I would like that too. And you're making me think of, you know, on this podcast, we've spent a lot of time on the E in ESG and thinking of things like the voluntary carbon markets where government policy not moving fast enough to address uh, an important issue, in that case, climate change. So you've got stakeholders, activists encouraging corporates to make net zero commitments and then, you know, holding them accountable to that. It sounds like you're saying we might experience or, or that would be another avenue to get more privacy if the the corporations that are the buyers of the analytics based on our data are held to account to be, okay, we want you to be, you know, what is your policy on protecting the digital privacy of the people who you're buying analytics based on their data? Um, are there certain standards in place? And then we'll hold the, the boards accountable. Is that, is that one pathway that you're thinking of? Absolutely. I mean, what, you know, again, this is my little company. It's called Privacy Code. If you have done all of the elements of privacy engineering, you should be able to prove them. You're already doing it now. You're going into your sprints and you're asking people to do two week uh, proofs that they're doing proof of work. At the end of all of that work, you should have proof that it's done. We're already doing quality testing before it goes out the door. We're doing collections of P1s of the most you know, dire security risks. We sure as heck should be doing the P1s for privacy where we're saying, hey, this feels icky or this seems like too much data collected for purpose or wait a minute, there's no expiration date on this? Yuck. That's not something that's going to be delicious. That's not organic data. So when we're looking for those aspects and we actually roll all those things up, do you have a quality program? Have you appointed a privacy officer who is not a compliance person? Of course, you're doing compliance. That's the basic. That's like showing up in the morning. But are you a privacy strategy person? Are you talking about the nutrition of your data? Are you strategically ready to go to Europe? It's not just are you getting away with it because you've always gotten away with it because things are getting hot over in Europe. They're building a very big digital wall over in Europe. So are you ready to scale that wall as senior leadership? And the only way you get around, under, and through that wall is to build a contextual consent economy versus a surveillance economy. And the companies that are going to win and the companies that are going to be resilient are going to build that in from the board all the way down to the bottom. And getting that the, the S&G into the ESG. That's right. And as you said, it, it, with Europe building more of a wall, it also just becomes a pure profit business. Are you going to cut out a large yeah. market from your from your company? And don't think it's just Europe, because guess what? China's Belt and Road already has agreements in place. China has a very strong privacy law. 
their concept of privacy is far more communal. And I don't mean communism, I mean communal. They have a different societal approach philosophically to groups of data and, and, and designation of origin and family ancestry and time than we do. Hong Kong has always had some of the strongest laws. Singapore has strong laws. Latin America has something called habeas data, where the data should be staying in Brazil under LGBT. These people have very strong points of view on what should your system look like. These are systems ingredients. Are you ready to be a global player in the information society? Get ready. It's coming. Well, I want to shift gears for a second and go to the, the, the point of view of a parent. You know, it's the summer, the kids are out of school. As our conversation has probably suggested, I'm from Generation X. Uh, <laughs> Same. And I realize, like, we're the last generation to come into a world without personal computers, smartphones, and the internet, and then have them all arrive while we're here. I mean, I remember the learning to program. We didn't call it coding back then on a Commodore 64 and walking down to the uh, the computer lab in college to check email. Yep. I mean, that's all those ridiculous things. Uh, it's like being in a horse and buggy. But I see my Gen Z children growing up in a world that, you know, has pretty little regard for their privacy and little expectation of digital privacy. And I'm curious, like, how do you see that generation that's kind of grown up in this world of l very little privacy dealing with that lack of privacy? And is there something that we can do, those of us with memories of it, to help them rebuild <laughs> a culture of privacy? Or is it going yeah. back to the horse and buggy? No, and I actually think I think privacy needs I think we need a, a marketing rep. You know, when Steve Jobs said cloud, suddenly having utility computing seemed like a possible and feasible business. Uh, you know, when we called it the grid or the utility, when I was at Sun Microsystems, everyone was like, yawn, yawn, that's those geeks talking again. Suddenly Jobs comes out and calls it the cloud and we're talking about weather and rain and sunshine and da, da, da. It's the same darn thing. It's a server that's not yours. Um, <laughs> but the thought of not having to buy a rack and have your cords managed and have your HVAC paid for and, uh, and real estate decisions made before you can even have capabilities changed everything. So I think when we look at privacy as we looked at cloud, if we had a better word that's not security and the notion of privacy, I think is probably led best by what I think of as a student council. So think about the digital natives and, and particularly Gen Z. I, I have two Gen Zers. They're both, the, you know, my daughters are five years apart. So one's a little older and, and had a later entree and is very irritated that my younger daughter got her phone much earlier. <laughs> and I was much more permissive with the second one and, and, you know, things had progressed. I think if you look at their behavior in an anthropological kind of sense, and you see what our kids are actually doing, and I say kids, like my, my oldest is a young adult. There are different personas that they self-select. Some are selected for them because they're on a cheer squad or they're in a sports team. And so their coach says, use this app, you must. Some of them are, you have to be on this platform to be educated during a pandemic. But the things that they choose for themselves, the, the way that they entertain themselves, the way that they educate themselves about the issues, the way that they interact with communities that they care about, 
I didn't have friends in Iceland when I was 12. They do. I didn't have a persona that was like, you know, this cool, punky little fashionista that my one has, or this like, you know, rabid protest eco warrior chick that my other one has. But both of them have the Sunday school for grandma persona. Ding. They both have Facebook accounts. I don't know who those kids are on Facebook. They are not my children. <laughs> there are these perfect. I got an A today. I graduated. I disappear until Easter and then I'm back. So if we if we had if my employees at these big companies that I used to work for all behaved like my 13-year-old girls when they both were 13 with the secret of who is your crush. If every employee only was as secure as a 13-year-old child with the information of who is your crush, we would not need a CISO. We probably would need a lot less technology. You cannot get that information from them. Under torture, you <laughs> cannot get that information. So thing number one, they know how to keep a secret when they want to keep a secret. Thing number two, your secrets aren't their secrets. So just the fact that they're always doing stuff that you think of in your wisdom is risky, it's just not risky to them. They don't have your wisdom. And understanding that they, unlike us, switch platforms like they're changing t-shirts on and on. And if you don't please me and you don't respect my personal space, they may not call it privacy, but they will switch and they will leave you. And that's the difference. I think that, so this generation coming up absolutely understands platform. They understand community they have a much greater expectation of globalization. And that's not just coming from a Western point of view, like working with children from other parts of the world that have access, they do. Now, the other big part of this is there are a huge, huge, you know, billion cadres strong and 65 million people this year alone who have been displaced by war or climate who have no access. So we're talking about a very big world of, of have and have not, but where the world is connected and we are largely connected, we have a different expectation of civic duty. We have a different sort of how do we behave online? We haven't set the rules yet on manners. I'd like to see better manners <laughs> when you're anonymous. I'd like to see that. But I don't think that's a lack of privacy. I think it's just early days. I think there weren't a lot of manners in San Francisco in 1849. Well, you've given me some hope that the younger generation may be a step ahead of figuring out how to, to recreate some privacy uh, for themselves, at least. And I often realize that, you know, with many things in life, uh, once we lose it, we realize how important it actually was to us. And then we start to work hard to take it back, even though we often have to work harder to take it back than we would have had to work to keep it in the first place. And with the developments we've been talking about today, I hear a lot of people who want a call to action, but what can we do and where do we draw hope from? And, you know, we talked a little bit about where we can start, but I was wondering if you had any other hopeful thoughts on where we could start today. Yeah, I think, I think we need to, we, I think we need to demand more. So regardless of where you are, whether you're a technologist who needs to demand more clarity on what are privacy and security requirements you're a board member, you need to demand more information about how are we going to be strategic in an information society? Why am I only hearing about cybercrime? Why am I not hearing about data alacrity? Why am I not hearing about data provenance? Where are my measurements relating 
to the availability and portability of data sources to growth as an investor, I want to see that. As a venture capital community, why do we still have these dinosaurs out there saying, don't build privacy in and don't build security until the end? I'm like, I used to be the buyer. Like right now I'm a builder and I am pen testing myself from the first line of code that we've written. Granted, I'm a security and privacy person. So of course I'm going to do that. However, I've also been a buyer for most of my 30-year career. And I have either taken huge multi-million dollars and put it in escrow for during the deal closing for the cleanup, because a lot of times your red flag isn't big enough as a privacy person to kill a deal. But I guarantee you, I'm taking that chunk and I'm giving it either to the PwCs or Deloitte's or whomever is helping me do the cleanup on aisle six, or I'm keeping that back to either pay bad debts of privacy, builded more security, or in some cases, so when WhatsApp was purchased by Facebook, I'm not an insider on either of those deals. This is just the goss going down Silicon Valley. Not a single line of code of that original thing ended up in the real thing. So even though they already overpaid $2 billion for something, now they got a lot out of it. They really overpaid because they had to rewrite the whole thing. So had they been following the rules and had they been doing the right thing from day one, you would have had more pure profitability. And we're going to see that more and more and more as you're talking about SaaS services, as you're talking about healthcare apps, as you're talking about more and more covered entities falling into these buckets of regulated CCPA, CPRA, state law, and internationally influenced stuff. So regardless of where you are in that spectrum, demand more. Ask for more information. If you're a builder, build. If you're a security person, make sure you understand the corpus of which you are securing. If you are an observer because you think you're going to sell data later, understand the context and put a date on that thing because that strawberry is going bad fast. Thank you for all of that. Give me a whole <laughs> lot to think about and some hope for the future and actionable steps, like things that we can actually be doing to improve the world and improve our markets. And because this is our summer playlist, which I think of as our beach reading in a podcast, I'm also asking everyone, and I'll ask you for one more thing, which is what's on your personal beach reading list this summer? Okay, I'm going to cheat. I warned you in advance I was going to cheat. You did. So <laughs> you, you have a dispensation. Okay, thank you. It's kind of an ADD thing, I think. So I'm reading two books right now. I'm rereading Atomic Habits. It's a great book. Because... Yeah. And everything we talked about today is like, I guess I'm an incrementalist and always have been. But like you said, like we we do bad things and then we pay for them. Well, I put on 30 pounds during the pandemic. It was a lot more fun and easy putting that on than it is taking it <laughs> off. And the only way to do it is like one little thing at a, at a time, one little chunk. Like the world seems really hard and really big and really scary right now. And guess what? It's no scarier than it was in 1933 or 1945 or 1966. So we can do this. Atomic habits, personally, globally, socially. So that's like my, like, kind of gives me hope and like remind myself that this is all doable book. And then the other one is a pure beach read, page turner, cops and robbers, former cop turned detective called Be Gone by my dear friend, Dennis Fisher, who used to be a journalist. And now he is a novelist and a journalist. 
Well, that sounds like some good beach reading. Good escapism. But like you said, you're cheating. You're also doing something good for yourself. So yeah, very well stuff. balanced. Well, yeah, I'm as well balanced as a startup operator can be. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a startup operator who's going 24 hours a day, thanks so much for making the time to spend a little of your summer with us. So really appreciate Absolutely. it. It was great catching up with you. You too. Thank you so much. And thanks for this series. I have really learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Michelle Dennity, CEO of Privacy Code. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our summer playlist on Smarter Markets with our next special guest. We hope you'll join us. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.